For almost 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has pointed the way toward salvation through Jesus Christ. For each of us, that journey starts in darkness, as if in a cave. We invite you now to come with us as we seek wisdom and truth by way of faith and reason with your guides, Mark Tuttle and Timothy O'Donnell. Join us in the Catholic Cave. Welcome once again to the Catholic Cave. I'm Kent Blanford in the cave with me, your favorite troglodytes, Mr. Timothy O'Donnell, Mr. Mark Tuttle. Gentlemen, we are going to see some major, major changes within the economic status of the United States over the next year. It's going to be kind of a rough ride until we know what direction things are going. And, uh, you know, how we decide on, you know, what our values are in those economic circumstances is going to be a major challenge for Catholics. Now, I always go back to, you know, the simple question that was asked by Cain in Genesis, am I my brother's keeper? Well, God never answered that. (laughs) He didn't actually say, yes, you are. No, you aren't. But it was kind of left you know, open there that, yes, we are our brother's keeper. Now, I always interpret that as I, as in personally, am my brother's keeper. It's not the government is my brother's keeper. Mm. Now, others throughout history and, you know, in in this economics um, realm would say, yes, the government is responsible for taking care of folks. Is that where we stand or, you know, is it bottom up? taking care of people or is it from the top down taking care of people? You, you ask what sounds like a very simple question, but obviously there's a lot of layers and and complexity to that. So, and I think that's part of the diversity of the church um, is sort of the, why that becomes a complex question because the responsibilities that each of us have depends on the gifts and talents and place within society that we've, yeah, we've been given. Life, right, yeah. exactly. So my responsibilities as somebody that more or less runs a, a small, small not-for-profit organization um, and has a family and homeschools is going to be very different than somebody that owns... I don't know, a large software company that, that employs, mm-hmm. you know, thousands of people spread out across the country. Um, we both should be looking to Catholic principles, to the underlying core teachings of the church to guide our economic decisions. But those are ultimately going to be prudential decisions that are that are going to come down to where we are and, and sort of what our objectives are. Yeah, and th- this is going to be a... Uh well, I can tell already we're getting in over our heads, Mark, so we're going to need some help um, because we're, we're going to want to sort out, you know, Catholic principles and teaching from the sphere of, uh, say, application of those in terms of um, prudential judgments on different things. So mm-hmm. uh, we can't do it alone here in the Catholic Cave. We, we always need help. And today... I think we should bring in Professor Matt Will. What do you think? Yeah, Dr. Will is a, uh, I think he's a great guy because he, he really, not only is he an expert in, in finance and economics, etc., but he's very grounded in Catholic social principles. Yeah, and he's a, uh, he's a devout Catholic, so he, he practices what he preaches. So, yeah, well, let's do that. All right, then. With that, uh, we'll take a short break. We'll get Dr. Matt Will on the phone. And we'll be talking Catholic teaching 
and economics. You're listening to The Catholic Cave on Catholic Radio Indy. No fake news here, just the good news of Jesus Christ as shared through His one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic Radio Indy. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle here with Timothy O'Donnell and Kent Blanford, and we have with us today uh, Dr. Matthew Will. He's an associate professor of finance at the University of Indianapolis. He's also the director of external affairs, external relations, for the business school at the University of Indianapolis. So, welcome to uh, the Catholic Cave, Dr. Will. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So there's a lot of, I guess you could say, economic news floating out there. And what we like to do here on the Catholic Cave is kind of try to be a little subterranean about it, try to get underneath the... Uh, <laughs> it makes it sound like we're moles, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> try to get underneath the surface a little bit and look at some of the, uh, I guess, more underlying um, philosophical principles. And... Uh, of course, the headlines right now are completely dominated by COVID and by the policies that we've adopted to uh, try to curtail this, this global pandemic. And so um, obviously that's going to dovetail not only with, with the economy and um, economics, but also when you're talking about something like that, you're talking about the, the common good. So you're talking about uh, Catholic social teaching as well. Correct. I mean, you can't you can't put it any better than that. <laughs> so I I love so that's a great place to start. So, uh, uh, Doctor Will, could you tell us a little bit about give us a little bit of a perspective on um maybe maybe that intersection of of public policy, economic activity and impact, Catholic uh, principles, and how all uh, and, and now this is a, a big a big set set uh, setup for you, but. Uh, on how what kind of where where have we been the last eight months and then maybe we can talk about our contemporary setting and and how that might move forward but but what what is covid and all the the policies the economic activity impact economic activity and then maybe how how we as catholics might think about what what's transpired well you know let's let's um i guess let's build a foundation first for our discussion which is Catholic teaching so that people, I assume, who listen to this radio show are very comfortable and understand the Catholic perspective on economics, because they might be confused at the moment. Um, you know, we all, we all love Pope Francis, and, but sometimes he speaks differently than our previous two popes, who were very, um, I would say, very academic, very theoretical. They were speaking to Catholic scholars, where Pope Francis speaks more to the common person, and Therefore, he chooses his words differently, and sometimes that causes scholars to miss and you know be be um, scratch their heads a little. Sometimes <laughs> I, I know yeah. I do. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. Because you know, remember, you know, when Pope um, Saint Pope John Paul II would speak, he would often speak um, in very scripted words, and you could dissect them very closely. And of course, you know, um, the next Pope, which was former Cardinal. Uh, Ratzinger was a theological machine, writing books mm -hmm. after books after books. And so they always spoke and wrote officially. They, they never had, you never heard a personal opinion. In fact, I'll give you a story. Um, when Pope John Paul II, he made a personal statement once about that maybe the government should pay moms to stay at home. And the next day the Vatican came out and said, no, 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 
That is not an official teaching. That was a thought from the Pope, and he says he should not have said that. So they're so precise, where the current Pope, he gives his opinion probably every day, and most people don't understand. It's an opinion. It's not official teaching. Until it comes in an encyclical or some other you know, official pronouncement, it is not Catholic teaching. So people get confused about that. Um, so they just need to be aware. So we really need to go back and look at Catholic teaching. And when it comes to economics, the, the guiding document, which was written in 1891 by Pope Leo the 13th, was Rerum Novarum. It is the uh, seminal work on Catholic social teaching, and it includes economics. And it was very important for people to understand. I know that's a long lead into a very simple statement, but the very simple statement is that we must reject socialism. And it says that clearly. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'll give you an exact quote. You hate to do quotes, but there's so many beautiful <laughs> things in church documents. Go for it. Yeah, I, I love hearing reading. from that. Go ahead. Yeah. It says, quote, It is clear that the main tenet of socialism, the community of goods, must be utterly rejected, end quote. That's the actual quote. And then it goes on to say it over and over again, because it says, quote, Socialists, by endeavoring to transfer the possession of individuals to the community at large, strike at the heart of the wage earner, since they mm-hmm. deprive him of the liberty to dispose of his own wages. End quote. Now, what is that telling us? That's telling us that you don't get to heaven by God taxing you, or by the government taxing you and redistributing your wealth. Right. You get to heaven by disposing of your own wealth. Right. Right. So I guess that leads to the, the, the first question is, what is the distinction? Is there a difference between simply high taxation and, um, you know, we, we all pay taxes. We all have to pay taxes to a certain extent because there, there are goods and services that the government provides. Um, what's the difference between high taxation and socialism? Okay, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very good question, and I don't know that we can answer it in, in a short time frame here. Okay. Um, be, because, you know, Pope Paul VI, he wrote in 1967, as a, and my Latin is terrible, so, um, Populorum Progressio, he wrote in his encyclical, that God intended the earth and everything in it for the use of all human beings and peoples, and created goods should flow fairly to all. Now you're thinking, whoa, whoa, that, that's, that's, is, that, is that more of a socialist teaching? Um, and no, because he goes on to talk about the fact that we need to be part of a community. I mean, the church is a community. Right. You know, we're the, Catholic, the universal Catholic church. And so there's nothing wrong with taxes. But the, the concepts, so if you read through, and there's so many other encyclicals. Pope John Paul was very prolific in his writing on this topic, uh, too, um, when his, he wrote about labor. We have to be careful not to deprive the individual of their right to dispose of their goods while also providing for the public needs. Now, the public needs are not charity, because this is where people get confused. Our goal is not to alleviate poor. They think, oh, well, no, we must make sure everybody in the world is fed and clothed. No, no. There's a difference between your need to give and someone else's need to, to survive. You and I both know that you get to heaven through, there is, there is, there is grace to be received in suffering. There is nothing wrong with us enduring hardship and benefiting our soul as a result of that. 
Um, but my need to give, I may not be able to give enough to satisfy your needs, but I, there, I must continue to give in order to get to heaven. But I may give, and your satisfied needs may be satisfied, but I still have to give more because I haven't given enough. So people, there's a, there's a distinction between our need to give to save ourselves and the need that exists in the world. And, and so taxes are important. We need a society. We cannot have anarchy. We do need government. But it cannot go so far as to redistribute the goods and the wealth of society. It's simply to provide for the basic needs in our society. You know, the picking up of the trash, the national defense, the libraries. But it can't go so far as to, oh, so you're going to have to provide everybody with at least a minimum level of, of wages and at least free this, you know, free education. We in the Catholic Church, the government doesn't provide for our free education. We are obligated to educate our children ourselves, and that's why we have this incredibly network of Catholic schools. That is not government-created. That is our choice to give to our local parish to support that school. Well, one of those, uh, one of those other points of confusion, I think, that's out there that I, I seem to encounter is we, we tend to use the term, like, government as if it's somebody else. Like, is it, you know, the government's going to provide this government. Well, ultimately, the government doesn't have any money except through what it collects through taxation or borrows, which we're ultimately, as the citizens, we're responsible for that debt. Well, not only, in fact, I'll give you a story about Greece and Cyprus. Is You say we're responsible for that debt. Well, at some point, when you keep borrowing like we're doing now, you may not be able to pay it back. So what did they do in Greece and Cyprus? They confiscated the wealth of private and citizens. People don't even realize, because it's a small little island in the Mediterranean, but Cyprus, uh, just a few years ago, they confiscated 48% of everyone's wealth over $10,000. They just confiscated it. They froze everyone's bank accounts. They had borrowed so much money, they couldn't, pu- they couldn't physically pay it back. They couldn't even afford to pay the interest back. Their tax rate was, was approaching 100%. Oh, jeez. And they simply, well, it was in the 60s. Yeah. Um, and they simply said, Okay, we're going to freeze all your bank accounts and just take your money. Oh my, <laughs> that, that that's shocking. What what do you think? Um, so, so that's that's a good foundation um, for us to, uh, or beginning of a foundation at least anyway, to, to begin to think about um, COVID and its economic impact. There's obviously we've borrowed, as you mentioned, uh, Professor Will. We've borrowed a lot of money um, and and distributed much of it to businesses and individuals. What, what do you think, what, what, what do you, how should we as Catholics think about that sort of activity? Well, I mean, I think that the exact economic policy is not a Catholic um, item. I, I think, in fact, when you read, you know, Pope John Paul, and you read Pope Benedict, you, they're very, very explicit, and we do not. In fact, I remember Pope Benedict in one of his encyclicals, I forget which one right now, he says, we do not claim, nor do we offer a specific policy solution, nor should we as Catholics to, to government authorities. So let, let's start by saying I don't think that there is a, a Catholic policy that exists out there relative to that. In fact, oh, here it is, it's in, in Caritas and Veritate. Pope Benedict wrote, the Church does not have technical solutions to offer, nor does it claim to interfere in any way in the politics of states. And I, I think we have to be careful you know, in that phrase. So when, like, just this last week, when, when Pope Francis made some statements about a new world order, 
and the, the, the left jumped all over it and was all excited, they have to remember there was no official Catholic teaching in his statement as he was just off-the-cuff chatting with someone. So they need to be careful. I right, recommend right. they go back to church teaching. But, so, so, but to your question is I think the most important thing is not the policy, or is more important is the policy of lockdowns. I think distribution of wealth is wrong. I mean, we know it's wrong. It's, it's very clear just to take money and give it randomly, as we've been doing in this instance. Now, I'm not judging a policy, and I can talk about each individual part of the CARES Act and what I think about it. But we, the, the worst part is the lockdowns, the, the deprivation of freedom of individuals to be informed and make decisions. We as Catholics, that's the, the root. We are not like other... Um, Christian faith that, that believe that you're pre-selected, you know, to go to heaven. That's, we don't believe that. We believe that your actions can dictate whether or not you get into heaven. And so to lock us down and stick us in our office building, I mean, in our house and not let us leave, deprives us of a choice. And we as Catholics are, we believe that we are knowledgeable people. God gives us information, and then we decide how we're going to act. And the lockdowns closed over 100,000 businesses permanently. Mm. Permanently are, are gone. Yeah, they're gone. They're not coming yeah. back. Right. So wh- what did that do to those individuals? Well, so the policy of lockdowns, I think, was just a, a, a horrendous policy. But then the government was, it's kind of like a domino effect. Once you lock them down, well, what do you do? You chose to shut them down. You chose to put them out of business. Now you are obligated to somehow take care of them. And that's what happened. And so the government is now spending trillions of dollars to fix a problem that they created. And by the way, the fix is probably just as bad as the original uh, decision to lock them down. Yeah, and, and I think that brings us back to another very foundational principle that's there in Rerum Navarum, and that is the prerogative and responsibility of the church as the charitable institution, um, you know, Pope Leo XIII spends a lot of time talking about how, you know, the, the, the role of charity, the role of taking care of the poor, the role of, of being that organization that's there to sort of undergird the, the poor and the needy, etc., is the churches, and he very jealously guarded that, but there's a, there's a responsibility that goes with that. And so, you know, the lockdowns obviously are going to affect that as well as the ability of, of Catholics to, you know, work. Um, and, and working is, is part of our responsibility. And once again, it's a, a kind of a right and a prerogative to, uh, to creatively um, contribute towards the common good. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's what um, Pope Benedict wrote in, in Truth and Charity. That was his exact point, is we have an obligation to give. You know, there's, that, that was a very controversial encyclical at the time from the left because he was very clear that we as individuals must give, that we, we must give till it hurts. And he was actually following up on Rare Novarum that said, hey, capitalism is fine, you can go out and make money, you have to be kind and charitable and not be selfish, not be, you know, greedy and be ethical. And he said, no, let, let, let me clarify, you must feel free to, to work hard and, and make wealth, and then you must give it away till it hurts. Right. I mean, you, right. you just said it. It's, we are the charity arm, but as individuals, again, individuals, we as Catholics can't be confused. While we're a universal church, we can't be confused with the institution of the church and the obligation of the individual. The church has many charitable entities, but they are nothing more than components of people working together. 
You don't get in, again, you're not going to get into heaven as a group. There's no parish that, oh, we had a great organization. We're, we're the Franciscans. We're getting to heaven because we're Franciscans. No. Each individual's charitable works are what's going to drive their, their path to heaven. Right. And it's called charity for a reason, because for it to truly be charity, it has to be grounded in love, which means it has to be grounded in at least some form of a relationship. Yes. Yes. Well, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Matt Will. He is an associate professor of finance at the University of Indianapolis. Again, we've been talking a little bit about uh, the impact of uh, COVID and lockdowns. Um, let me ask you this question as it pertains to lockdowns. Is, is there a balance? And we're also making, you made an important distinction earlier between things like policy that tends to um, reside in application of policy reside more in prudential judgment where there's room for reasonable people to disagree versus say Catholic principles. When it comes to, when it comes to um, lockdowns, it seems the lockdown, one of its main purposes was to protect the health of individuals, oneself and one's neighbors by, by trying to slow the spread of uh, the COVID virus. Is there a, is there a tipping point, though or how 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 might we strike a balance between our uh responsibility to protect one's own health and the health of others versus um this exercise of freedom or liberty even to engage in commercial activity how how might we strike a balance there you know th- that's that's a great question and you know i have a um i have an opinion that may not be very popular among some of the uh the health community and that is that uh, you can't. You can't strike that balance. Because if you were to use that argument, it, it's a very slippery slope to say, well, I need to protect the health of my neighbor. I can't let a child go to school because if that child goes to school, they may take the virus back to their grandparents or their parents. Do you understand that if we use that logic, we can deprive people of everything in this world? And I just I cannot accept that logic. You know, Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. And where is it any different today? People died, soldiers, veterans died on the battlefield for the simple concept of freedom. The concept. They, they died. They, it wasn't by virus. It was, it was worse. They were shot. They were blown up by bombs to protect our freedom not to be locked down. And so... I think, you know, this is where my libertarian um, streak comes out, is that as long as we are an informed society, fully disclose everything about what is happening in our lives and in our community, that each individual has a responsibility to make that choice. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about with with charity as well, you know, that, that as a Catholic we are obligated to act in community for the benefit of the common good, for the benefit of others. And so when you deprive liberty, when you restrict us, you're, you're basically keeping us from being able to do our duty as, as a Catholic to serve others. You're, you're, you're keeping us from, from serving others. And, and yeah, I, think people, um, I think people make the, the mistake of making a distinction between your professional life and your private life when it comes to charity. That whatever you're doing as a professional really ought to be grounded in charity and love for the other as well. Even if you're making money off of it, even if you're making money hand over fist, you still ought to be doing what you're doing for the good of the community and the good of society. 
And so when you do have a lockdown, when you do restrict people, when you do say, no, we're not going to allow you to go out into public out of fear of uh, contracting a disease and giving it to others, you're, ne you're, you're necessarily restricting that freedom to be able to act in charity. So you're restricting love and you're restricting, therefore, kind of the actions of the church just, just de facto through even a lockdown that just encompasses um, businesses. Oh, you know what? A perfect example of that is, you know, m my father visits um, elderly in the in nursing homes. He takes communion to them. He brings God to people. He puts God into their bodies. He is now deprived of that. He's been deprived of that since March. So the people that are living in nursing homes cannot receive the body of Christ. Is, is there any more precious gift than we, that we get on a weekly basis than to receive the body of Christ? And the government has told my father he is deprived from doing that. That is a scary thought. It should be, it should be to we as Catholics, we should be protesting in the streets about the fact that we cannot give the most precious gift in our church to individuals who most want it at this point in their lives. That's a scary thought. But let me, let me clarify one thing, because, you know, my statement earlier, this is the good thing about radios, is people may get confused about my statement regarding, you know, um, lockdowns and what, you know, people should be allowed to go and do everything they want. That's not what I said. Just like with taxes, there's a reasonable regulation that could be put in place. There's, there's nothing wrong, and this is where my, you know, my, my you know, pro-freedom friends will get mad at me. And believe me, I've had some of them get very mad at me for this. There's Probably on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. I, had no, you know, I have no problem with the government saying you are required to have a mask. Now, we can debate the efficacy of a mask. I personally believe the research has come in that says it's, it's beneficial. We can debate the efficacy of that. That's no problem, and we can agree to disagree. But the government, as long as they don't deprive you of your freedom, they can say you must wear a mask. You, know, you must wear a seatbelt when you're in your car. That is not an overextension of depriving you of your freedoms. But saying you must stay in your house and you cannot see your parents or grandparents or, or visit a, an establishment of business simply to get your hair cut that is a stretch too far, and that does deprive an individual of their freedom. And this is what I love about the Catholic faith. You can go, faith, you can go through Thomas Aquinas, and you can go through, you know, you name the, the philosopher in history, they talk about where you draw these lines. And they can be drawn, and we have definitely drawn them in the wrong place in society today. And I think uh, the lockdowns are the perfect example of it. Right. And, and we were talking kind of before the show, Tim and I were, that all of these decisions involve trade-offs to a certain extent. Yes. But as Catholics, we should be guided, I think, by the principles and sort of priorities that the church puts on, um, you know, the, these various levels of, of trade-offs. So as we go back through social teaching, what are some of the priorities? What are, what are some of the, uh, the sort of absolutes that, you know, this should not be restricted under any circumstances, but on the other hand, you know, for the sake of health, etc., this might be something that the, the church says, yeah, you know, that, that's something that, that's probably not so important. Wow. Well, there, there's a lot to that. Um, you know, first of all, trade-offs versus science. Let me, let me talk about that one. Because people say, well, I believe in science. Well, oh, yeah. That, that one always gets in, me going. Yeah, you believe in a very biased view, because normally the evolution of, of this virus and its vaccine and its treatments would have occurred in, a, in, a, in, a, in an academic environment, because in an academic environment, things succeed, they fail, they get thrown out there, they get tested, they, they achieve their goals. 
we're seeing that in real time in headlines and social media. Normally, a, a scientist does something, he or she finds out it works, they're happy. If it doesn't work, they just go back to the drawing board. Nobody puts them on social media saying, you're a scoundrel and a liar because you said it worked and then it didn't. No, that's normal research. That's how it works. You trial and error. But we are now debating science in real time, which is totally unreasonable. And then people draw conclusions and won't change. I mean, a good example is just last week. Last week, Johns Hopkins University, the student ledger newspaper, published a research report by a, a graduate student who had access to all the Johns Hopkins data, which is the most prolific database of health data in the world. And he showed that, and you can still see this online, he showed that the uh, mortality rates for every single illness is down this year than they've ever been since they've been keeping data. Normally, they're, you know, ask any actuary, which I'm a recovering actuary. That, <laughs> <laughs> bad thing to say, but true. <laughs> that mortality rates are extremely statistically consistent. Mm -hmm. Well, what we found is they were down last year, this year, I mean. Why? Because we're misclassifying deaths as COVID deaths when they are related to something else. Because mm -hmm. a person had COVID and also died of heart disease, we're putting them down as a COVID death. Well, if we, if we go back and look at the norm, the normative rates at which people die of various illnesses and put those to the normal rates where they should be and would be without COVID, we see that the COVID impact is not nearly as dramatic as we're making it out to be. Not nearly. It is bad. And see, this is where people will misquote me. It is bad stuff. But guess what? People die every year. And so when we say trade-off versus science, it's not, I, don't, I think that's a miscomparison. The fact is that the science we're learning every day more and more. You know, I've been accused of being on the radical left and the radical right during this whole COVID experience because I keep changing as data and research comes out, yet the people who say listen to the science only listen to selective science. And here's the proof. That research report, which was published in a Johns Hopkins publication, was subsequently suppressed by Johns Hopkins itself. They still have it posted in their archives, so you can get to it. But they removed it from the official publication because of pressure from people who did not like the facts that were presented. Well, I think that presents a whole nother um, uh, danger uh, that we're facing, which is this which is a whole nother show, which is kind of around the media and how we how do we access reliable sources of, of knowledge so that we can make informed decisions about our actions. I mean, that's that's a, that's a whole nother show. I, I want to because I, I, I if, if, if it's OK, I'd like to um, pivot the conversation just a little bit um, to um, what uh, what uh, we, we see now as. Um, although it, it's it, as of the recording of the show, it's not completely settled yet, but it looks like Biden, good chance he's going to take office as president. What might, if, if that's the case, him and, and Kamala Harris, what might be some of the policy uh, changes um, that they might bring uh, to office? Well, you know what? That's, um, I, first of all, it, it is, in my opinion, it, it's President elect Biden. There's, there's no chance. Um, whether, whether there is or is not fraud, you know, depends on whether or not they go and investigate. People that say there's no fraud, well, you know, I have students who cheat on tests all the time, and 
my colleagues say they don't cheat. Well, in their class, they don't look for the cheaters. If you look for the cheaters, you find them. If you don't look for them, <laughs> guess what? You're not going right. to find them. Well, even but, even so, I mean, it's it's investigate. But then even if you have evidence, you still got to get someone to agree with your evidence. I mean, so they're, they're, he's got an uphill climb uh, to be sure at this point. But Well, yeah. But anyway, my opinion yeah. is that Biden's going to be president. And, you know, when he appointed Yellen, I was... I took a sigh of relief. The markets were happy, not because they like Yellen, but because they thought it was going to be so extreme. And in fact, she is, uh, you know, more in the the moderate side of the spectrum, maybe a little left, but more of the moderate side. And I think the market was happy with that. They were nervous about what the choice may be. That being said, after Yellen's appointment, it has been a series of some of the most radical people we have ever seen in economic side of government. It's been one after another. It's very alarming to me. Um, he has chosen the head of his um, Office of Management and Budget, uh, Neera Tandon. Mm-hmm. She's the head of this organization called the Center for American Progress, which is basically a redistribution of wealth organization. So the person in charge of his budgets is a person who runs an organization that is responsible for trying to redistribute wealth in the most socialist way that you've ever seen. So that's who's in charge of his budget. And his uh, Council of Economic Advisors chair, Cecilia Rouse, is a Princeton economist who is known specifically for strong union, strong uh, union labor, uh, anti-free market policies. So the two most powerful people on his economic team, other than Yellen, are, you, you cannot get more radical to the left than these two individuals are. It is very scary, as we saw him um, recently round out his economic team. And I guess just to go back to sort of the, the basics, why are, there, why are there policy decisions, why are the directions and, and their past, why would that be problematic um, from a perspective of Catholic teaching? I'm not sure if I understand the question. I mean, are, are we going back to Rerum Novarum? Right, exactly. Going back to Rerum Novarum and, and other, other social encyclicals after that. Um, I guess the, the, the bottom line is, if they're socialists, once again, what's wrong with socialism? Well, I mean, it's, it's just basic Catholic teaching, as we talked about earlier. The redistribution of wealth is explicitly banned in Rerum Novarum. It, it is, it's not even, you know... It's very clear, like it says, to deprive the wage earner of his liberty to dispose of his own wages. And that, you know, quote, the, the community of goods must utterly be rejected, end quote. I mean, those are very clear teachings. Um, and, they, and it said, and they, I'll give you another quote. It said that the inviolability of private property must be protected. That's a pretty dramatic statement to say that, no, we must protect your right to private property. And so right there in one document, so the community of goods must be rejected. Uh, the, dis, allow, preventing someone from disposing of their own wages, which is you know, low taxation, must be prevented. And we must protect private property. Those three things are explicitly, clearly defined in social teaching of the Catholic Church. And so when you have a, an administration that has people who have said very explicitly, and, and the Wall Street Journal had some... They just quote these same individuals. He, they just have a really good article, just quote after quote, contradicts exactly these things. They said the opposite. So we as Catholics, I think, have an obligation, and it's shocking that we have a Catholic soon-to-be president, 
you know, the first one since, since John Kennedy, who is explicitly pointing people to office who oppose Catholic teaching. You know, one of the policies that uh, may, may surface in a Biden administration, and I'm wondering if you could maybe define this and, and, and tell us how it might work and why it may or may not be problematic, is universal basic income. That, that, I've heard that brought up quite a bit. So yeah, well, could you could you define what that is and then whether or not that would, uh, you think that might surface in a Biden administration? Oh, it, 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 it absolutely will because the people that he is, like I said, the one person who's already chosen his Office of Management and Budget, that is exactly in her many of her, her writings is this basic income, this minimum income for people. What does and, that mean? Know, yeah, what does that mean when they when they're using that term? Well, that means that no matter what you do, if you never get out of your room and work, if you're an able-bodied person who can go out and get a job and you refuse to, they will send you a check, and it will be a, an amount that is, of course, to be determined. But the writings of some people say that it's a fairly generous. You could just sit in your house and watch TV for the rest of your life, and someone else will work to pay for that. So, Mark, you could st- you could stay home in your plaid onesie playing Xbox and reap cash from right. the go- from the quote unquote government, right? And and <laughs> that what, could be a dream come true for a few for it a few be. people. Yeah, but you know the 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 principle there, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know Pope Benedict the Sixteenth wrote about this extensively. Other popes have written about this. There's a dignity in work. And yeah. there's, a, there, there, there's an importance behind work that allows us to fulfill um, not only our duties, but really our, um, our privileges to a good extent as Catholics by working. And so, you know, obviously some sort of universal income is going to, I guess, kind of discourage that. Oh, more than, yeah, <laughs> discourage it is probably a, a polite way to say it. You know, I always get upset that we as Catholics let one concept slip away from us, and I, you know, philosophically, and that was, the Protestant work ethic, you know, which was developed oh, by Max mm-hmm. Weber, who wasn't even religious. I mean, so this this atheistic guy developed the Protestant work ethic. But I, I always feel bad that how did the Protestants get a hold of that? Because we as Catholics, we believe in hard work. <laughs> you know, I, and I think I think the way Weber came to that was he looked at the sort of northern European countries, and then he looked at sort of the southern European countries. And it was more of, I mean, honestly, it's, it's almost a, a quasi-racist statement when you come down to it of, of kind of looking at the, the cultural differences between the two cultures and, and saying, yeah, you know what, we like, uh, we like Northern European um, culture a little bit better than we like the, uh, the Southern Mediterranean culture. Oh he, oh, he went so, remember, he went so far as to distinguish between Northern and Southern German. I mean, so I wouldn't say it was racist, it was, it was very geographical. You know, he said those people in Freiburg was a bunch of goofballs who were just partying all the time, and the, the people up in Cologne and were, were like the hardworking real Germans, and the Prussians were the ultimate Germans. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I mean, that brings by, this probably a topic for a whole other show at some point, yeah. but the, uh, the value of leisure within, within Catholic teaching is, uh, is an important concept there, too. But it, shouldn't, it, it really shouldn't overshadow the value and dignity of work. And so, you know, really honestly, yeah, there, there is no excuse for being lazy. I, I say as a, uh, as my, my ancestry comes from northern Germany, so um, I say as a, a good northern Protestant <laughs> German. Because <laughs> Mark's a convert, I got that one right. Right, exactly, yep, yep, a, a convert from good old Prussian Lutheranism there, so. Uh. But you know what, it, it, I walked, a few years ago I was in Germany and I walked into a Lutheran church and 
I tell you, it looks more Catholic than some of the Catholic churches I walk into, so uh, I don't know how, how different they are. <laughs> well, uh, for our audience, we've been talking with uh, Professor Matt Will. He is an associate professor of finance at the University of Indianapolis, great friend of uh, Catholic Radio, and we've been trying to talk about economics and uh, policy and how change of admin- what COVID, impact COVID and things like that. I'm, I'm wondering here... If we another topic that at least I'm curious about, and I, I, hopefully our listeners are too, another term that gets uh, bantied about a little bit, and it, it probably expands beyond just economics, is this Green New Deal. And, and I know the Holy Father talks about, um, uh, you know, environmentalism and things like that. But at least in the, the sphere of economics, when you think about sources of energy and renewable energy and pollution, things like that. How might we? How might a transition from a Trump to a Biden administration? What might that? What changes might that usher in? You know, I think this is a this is an interesting point because people there's an assumption that people make about uh, green energy or green policies, and that is somehow that that President Trump and the Republicans were anti environment and anti green, and that's just that you can't make that assumption. You know, because he pulled out the Paris Climate Accords. Okay, people don't even understand what the Paris Climate Climate Accords are. I, I wish people would read things before they comment on them. <laughs> See, I've told you, Mark, <laughs> that's one of my shortcomings. Oh, because the Paris Climate Accord has nothing to do with us doing anything to the climate. It is one hundred percent a tax bill. It is simply an agreement that transfers wealth from the United States based on our GDP to other countries. The only environmental implications in the Paris Accords is that each country must develop their own set of goals. So that means there is no rule, there's no baseline, there's nothing in there other than you must come up with your own goals. There are countries like India and China that come up with goals that actually increase their carbon footprint. They just say, oh, but it's less than it would have been if we didn't set these goals. Right. (laughs) So it's silliness to think that somehow... You know, the United States, which is the most, yes, we have the highest carbon footprint, but if you could look at carbon per GDP, the amount of goods that we produce for the world, the amount of economic activity, it is one of the smallest. We are so clean when we produce one item. It is true. We produce more than everybody else. Hint, okay, this is a secret for everybody out there. I hope they don't spread it out so it doesn't get out there. It takes energy to do stuff. Right. And so the fact that we produce more stuff than anybody in the world, more than China, we produce more than China, we do it cleaner. When you produce one unit, let's call it a unit of GDP, our carbon footprint from that one unit is smaller than any country on the planet. We are clean in when we produce. I've been to China. When you go to Xi'an, China, and you look at the factories, you cannot breathe they are so polluted. It's mm. so the rivers are running with toxic chemicals in them. I've got pictures of these things. It, it breaks your heart. We are really good in what we've done here, and and I believe that the, the Biden administration is not going to be any stronger on the environment. I think they're simply going to be a we're going to use the environment like everybody else in the world as an excuse to tax and redistribute wealth. That's what they're going to do. Right, because you know ultimately. Private ownership and stewardship, I think, leads to better environmental outcomes than some sort of social, corporate, global, you know, attempt at responsibility 
where you ultimately don't have any accountability. Um, you know, if it's your own property, if it's your own factory, particularly if it's, it's some, if there's a, a, a kind of more established ownership that goes back multiple generations, you know, this is something that, that has been in your family, I guess. Um, you, you, have a, you have a stewardship and an obligation that carries over to the environment, and you're going to come up with better environmental, uh, I guess, principles and, and better management from a private ownership standpoint than you are from some sort of public socialist. And, and that's why, you know, the, the outcomes, you mentioned China, but, you know, the Soviet Union, you know, Russia is still trying to dig out from the environmental mess that was created by socialism and communism in they're the Soviet Union. They're never going to dig out of Chernobyl, buddy. Right, exactly. I just watched that on Netflix. Whoa, what a, what a disaster. I, I remember when it happened, but, but that, that thing's going to be burning for another thousand years. But it, but it goes back to the principle of, of private ownership that, um, that, that that's part of Catholic social teaching. If you look at, the, you know, those are great examples that you just gave. You know, socialism, which is alive and well in China, is creating the worst environmental disasters on the planet. India, which is on the spectrum, it's a, you know, socialism is a spectrum, like you mentioned earlier, what is the highest you know, taxable rate you could charge somebody? But they're, they're on the more towards the socialist side of the spectrum, and I was in India last year, and I can just tell you, it's, it's, it, it makes you cry when you see the environmental damage being done in that country. And then, of course, we know with this Hugo Chavez, the, uh, they... they, they navigate the oil industry as if who cares what happens to the environment in Venezuela. So you want to see the worst environmental impacts on the planet? Go to a socialist country. What do you think, uh, one, one other thing um, related um, to maybe the, the Green New Deal is, the, is uh, I'll get, I want to use a specific example, which is this um, push towards or impulse towards electric vehicles um what, what do you think about what do you think about that that move generally speaking as it pertains to say environmental impact or and, and whether or not the government should be involved in subsidizing uh transitions well, to more quote-unquote green energy you know, i think that i think i like your your distinction between the two you know the transition to this versus government you know subsidies of it i'm not a fan of government um putting their thumb on the scale. I think it's wrong um, to pick winners and losers. Who, Believe me, the, the least people I have confidence in in this world are government leaders. So I really don't want them picking the winners and the losers in our economy. Um, I think it's great that we have electric vehicles. Um, people should not be confused, however. Electric vehicles are not better for the economy, uh, or I mean for the environment. Uh, there's some confusion that they are. Uh, because the batteries, the chemicals, and the disposal, we haven't even begun to deal with the disposal of the toxic chemicals in, the, in batteries. So they are not better for the environment. That's a, that's a misperception. Um, do they consume less fossil fuels? Yes. And so people who, again, who are very narrow-minded and think the only thing that matters to the environment is fossil fuel consumption, they're right that electric vehicles are better. But if you look at the toxic chemicals produced when you make a battery, they're not correct. It's, it's worse. So I guess they care more about, you know, fuel, carbon fuel, than they do about toxic chemicals. So I guess it's just a trade-off as to what they're focused on. Um, but I'm a fan of it. You know, I'm a fan of, of innovation. I, I want to see the economy, you know, get, try new things. Remember, um, 
you know, you want to solve, you know, people are all happy that gas prices are low. You want to get rid of fossil fuels, let gas prices go up to 5 or 6 or $7 a gallon. You start paying that much, you're going to be looking for an alternative. Right, yeah. right. As you, because um, we're, we're going to run out of time here before you know it, as you think about, I'm going to ask you to kind of get your crystal ball out, or I kind of like myself, I, I still go to my, uh, that uh, round magic eight ball where you can kind of turn it upside down and it gives you advice. I still go to that once in a while. But when you think about 2021, what might be, what, what would be some uh, a forecast um, where we might be a year from now with, uh, say, our economic setting? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know that puts you on the spot. Um, okay, the forecast is very simple. It, it's very simple. Um, January 5th. Just look at January 5th. If the Republicans end up keeping the Senate, then the market will breathe a sigh of relief. They'll see that there's gridlock in Washington, which the market likes gridlock because they don't like change. Mm-hmm. Um, given the, the, the radicals that Biden has appointed to his economic team, if the Democrats take the Senate, then you know, Katie, bolt, bore, bar the doors, because it's going to be a lot of radical change in this country. Well, that's great. Well, we've been speaking with Professor Matt Will. He's an associate professor of finance at the University of Indianapolis. Hey, uh, Professor, how can people uh, kind of keep up with what you're involved in a gazillion different things? I mean, we only scratched the surface today. How might people uh, keep in contact with your work and what you're up to? Well, they can follow me on Twitter at drmattwill, or they can go to my website at mattwill.com. All right, fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for coming into the Catholic Cave. It's been a great discussion. Thank you very much for having me. And we're coming up on a break. We will be back with the Catholic Cave right after this. You can hear the Holy Mass every day at 8 a.m. right here on Catholic Radio Indy. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle here with Timothy O'Donnell, Kent Blanford, and we just got done with a fantastic conversation with uh, Dr. Matthew Will, who's a... uh, Associate Professor of Finance and Economics at the University of Indianapolis. And, uh, wow, we covered a heck of a lot of ground there. (laughs) We did. We touched on a lot of stuff. I don't know that we went as deep as we could or should have, but uh, I'm glad we touched on as many things as we did. So we've got to have him back very soon. Right. Yeah, there there was a lot that uh, I would have liked to have covered in in a little bit more depth. But, you know, we, we, we started talking about Rerum Navarum. And the church's social teachings that, as, as Dr. Will pointed out, you know, it, it kind of starts with that. That's the foundation of Catholic mm-hmm. social teaching, that encyclical that was written by um, Pope Leo XIII. And it was written as there was a growing, um, growing movement towards socialism in England, um, you know, primarily in England, but it had spread to the rest of Europe. And so there was a large question as to whether is socialism the answer to a lot of the social problems that had I, I begun to arise mm-hmm. to a certain extent because of the neglect of the ownership class. So you, you had business owners, you had factory owners, and there was a lot of exploitation of labor that was going on. And so... I, I guess the worldly reaction to this was, well, let's organize. Let, let, let's start to uh, to, to form um, socialist organizations to be able to take over ownership of the factories. And uh, the, the, the church spoke out very quickly and very clearly against that idea of socialism. Yeah, I think of that uh, Rerum Navarum, part of the historical setting being, because it was 1891, 
what had preceded the, the, the what had transpired that century leading up to it is you have the American Revolution, you have the French Revolution, you have the Napoleonic Wars, um, but you also have industrialization. And industrialization is going to and the and sort of a fading of what you know a breaking up of Christendom, um, the 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 arrival of nation states. You have Bismarck in Germany, and so there's there's just a lot a lot that's going on. And let's not forget because we recently we recently did a show with uh, Dr. Paul Kangor. You have Karl Marx and his writings are becoming incredibly influential, um, and that is fueling. Uh, ideologi- uh, ideologically, communism and socialism is, come, is, is flowing from Karl Marx. And so when you put all of these pieces together around the, the transformation of society through things like industrialization, you've got Marxism on the, on the march, on the rise, um, you've got nation states forming, There's, uh, you, have explo- you, have, you have these questions of exploitation of workers and the, the relationship of uh, ownership and private property and, and public good. There, there's just a ton, ton going on, and and that's why I encourage everyone to read, and I know you do too. Read Rerum Navarum. It's very, very accessible in terms of its readability, and you can uh, obviously read it for free online. You can go to like I like papalencyclicals.com, but the Vatican website, obviously, right. And and you know then there's a, a continuation, a series of continuation in, uh, of encyclicals that address things directly um, of uh, address the question of communism. They they address the question of environmental. Um, issues. Um, so th- there's a whole body of papal encyclicals that really mm-hmm. lay out a, a, a fairly detailed, um, I would say, scope of Catholic teachings around economic issues. Yeah. Uh, Pope St. John Paul II on the 100-year anniversary. Right. Santissimos Anos. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. another, that's fantastic because it's not only an updating to it, it, it has the, it has the beauty that, that is when, when Catholic, um, writing is really great it, it embraces um and holds together permanence and change and that encyclical is a fantastic example because it 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 pulls forward a hundred years of things that are the permanent principles of catholic teaching and yet there's change in it as well because there is a kind of updating to it so you have this continuity um in the teaching but then refreshed for a current setting and of course um, I, I'm sure our listeners are familiar with his biog- his personal biography, his life um, fighting against communism. So. Right, right. But, you know, th- those encyclicals are, are really a, a huge receptacle of Catholic teaching. Oh, much, yeah. Much more so. All you do is look at the footnotes. There's right. like 150 of exactly. them. Exactly. And, and, you know, the, the, the process of, a, of an encyclical involves more than just the Pope himself. So this isn't just the Pope's oh, opinions about these things. Right, right. These are, these are scholarly researched positions that um, involve, you know, huge amounts of the Vatican apparatus. And with that, we need to wrap it up for this week. For Mr. Mark Tuttle, for Timothy O'Donnell, I'm Kent Blanford. Until next time, be holy. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor. Tell them about Catholic Radio Indy.